Good morning. Would you take God's word, turn to Jonah chapter 3. For those that are visiting, we've been navigating a journey through the book of Jonah talking about revival. If you've been following the news at all, you know that there's an upcoming election in 2016. Already a lot of too much information going on about speculation, about who's in, who's out. But regardless of where you're at politically, there is a growing and continues to be an ongoing and building frustration in American politics between words spoken and actions taken. We call this the world of spin. And the world of spin is about creating an image of something other than what really is. A blog in 2012 written by Todd Phillips, the title of the blog was this, Why the Truth Doesn't Matter to the Candidates. Wow, what a title. He goes on to say this, it's very frightening. We are in a very frightening state of affairs where we misrepresent the truth and even lie. There is no greater threat to the freedom of American people than politicians who are willing to lie to the public. Then he asks this question. This is what I want you to focus on. What has allowed this to happen? Think about that. Now I want to talk about the good news. Not the good news of politics. I want to talk about the good news of Jesus Christ. Think about how the church today spins it. Think about how we reduce it to a certain prayer or a certain set of activities that you don't do more than you do to, rather than detach it from this incredible transformational experience, both in our minds and our hearts, that moves people closer to Christ. Now, if you are here last week, Dr. Kime did an excellent job talking about one of the theological markers about revival. Had to do with judgment. Not the judgment where we recklessly give our opinions about things that we don't have the complete story on or or things that don't matter. But rather the kind of judgment there says there's consequences to our choices. And just because we change definitions doesn't negate the consequences. But think about the good news of Jesus Christ and how in the American culture it's become bad news. Why? Go back to that question. What has allowed this to happen? What has disconnected this incredible, powerful message from the truth of what it finds in our life? What has allowed this to happen? Now, we've been talking about Jonah, and from the very beginning, we said the book of Jonah is a story about God and God being in control. But it's also a story about ourselves and how we take control, or at least attempt to take control from God. We noted the revival always begins with God speaking, and what's critical then is what we do with his word. Are we willing to align ourselves with God speaking? Or is most of our religion a version of talking to ourselves in a mirror? Who leads and why? 
Now, here's been our theological, well, actually, here's been our signs up to this point. We talk about certain signs coming out of Jonah. Well, three so far. The first sign is that sleeping Christians wake up. Whenever revival happens, somebody wakes up. Second sign was there's an intense season of God working. And we saw that in the storm. We saw that in the fish. And we're going to see that in Nineveh this week. Just not an emotional high. Just not a state of euphoria that we leave unchanged. There's an intense season of God working. The third sign was an intensified season of prayer. That's what Dr. Kime talked about last week when Jonah was thrown overboard. He was going down and he was praying. He was praying like he never prayed before at that point. Now we talked about three theological markers as well. Truth out of God's word. The first was confession and repentance. If revival is going to have to happen, we got to say the same thing. We got to be in agreement with God and what he declares. And then we got to turn and do something with that agreement. The second theological marker was faith in Christ. Not faith in our abilities or faith in America or faith in our world. It's faith in Jesus Christ. The third theological marker was judgment. Now this week we're getting into the fourth sign and the fourth theological marker. The fourth sign is praxis. And you wonder what that is. We're going to discuss that in a moment. And the fourth theological marker is obedience. Now praxis is the practical application of a theory or a belief. You've heard of orthodoxy. That's our doctrine. That's what we say we believe. There's a discipline called orthopraxy. It's how this doctrine is to be lived out. We live in an information age. Constant stream coming at us. And in context of the church, there is more, and I'm going to use this in quotations, Christian information because there's times we attach Christian to very unchristian ideas. There's a lot of times we say, thus saith the Lord, and God never said those. But there is more Christian information. There are more books. There are more movies. There's more in the social media. There's more blogs. There's more conferences. There are more retreats. And yet, according to Barna, he says, American Christians are functionally illiterate. Now, what that means is we really don't know what's in here. Evidently, there's a large gap between the information and the life, which means we have trouble with our praxis. There's this dissonance. There's this lack of harmony between what we say we believe and where we live. Now, I want to go back to that question. What has allowed this to happen? Now, one possible explanation comes from educational theory. They say if you don't act on what you've learned in 60 days, that information will be lost. Therefore, if I would take all my high school exams, I probably would flunk them. Because I studied, I did the test, and then I went about my business. It had nothing to do with what I learned. What that means is we can sit under the best teachers, we can read all the current books, we can go to Bible study after Bible study, and if nothing ever changes, we can have all the information, we can agree with the information, but if we don't go out and live that information, 
there's going to be this functional illiteracy going on in our lives. We call it self-deception. See, Jonah thought he could run away from God or at least get to a place where God would leave him alone. But that's not going to happen because God is everywhere. Now, another possible explanation is that we've taught people what to think rather than how to think. And, you know, there's a difference. So often in America, and the evidence is there, that we gather with people who think just like us, whose ideas are never challenged. And, of course, when we get together, we talk about those people over there who are not as enlightened as we are. And I'll admit it, you do it. I mean, it's the only explanation for why there are so many different Baptist churches. Can I get amen? I ran across this one this past week. Two seed in the spirit predestination Baptist. Doesn't that make you want to run? Not to, but from. I mean, I don't even know what that means, and I'm a Christian. Did you know there are Seventh-day Baptists? Baptists that only worship on Saturday because of the Sabbath. There's unregistered Baptists. I think they believe in conspiracy theory that if they register, the government will know everything about them. I don't know. There's regular Baptists. They might make a great commercial for, for constipation. I don't know. <laughs> There's the old regular Baptists. I don't know the difference between the two groups. There's this general six principal Baptists. Again, have you ever noticed the titles that we name our churches are for other Christians? What do you think the unchurched person is thinking when he drives by and sees all those kind of names on our signs? I mean, there's even one called the Welcoming and Affirming Baptists. I guess they don't think anybody else is welcoming and affirming. I don't know. But think about the multiplicity of denominations we have, and the only possible explanation is we are not people teaching people to engage in thought. Rather, we're teaching them what to think. And so we gather with people just like ourselves. And how tragic. Because we are a diverse group of people. And we're created in his image. And when you look at creation, you look at the diversity of everything around us and the beauty that creates. Why is it we want to reduce church to sameness? Somebody else is allowed to amen that too. I don't know who amen that one, but... Let's look at Jonah. Jonah chapter 3. Keep this in mind about praxis, about here's what God says and here's what we have to do. And if we're going to bring this whole knowledge and life closer, I mean, let's, let's admit that we're all on a journey and there's always some gap, but let's try to get the gap closer than it is. Keep this in mind as we read. Jonah chapter 3 verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Now, what we see here is the graciousness and the generosity of God. Think about Peter, who denies him three times. What does God do? He uses him as a mighty preacher in the day of Pentecost. There's Abram. And God keeps repeating himself again and again. Why? Because Abram's always taking detours. Anybody ever take a detour? God says, I want you to go this way. Abram says, well, you know, I'm thinking I'm going to go over here for a while. 
And even in situations where he's to trust God, he lies about his wife saying she's my sister because he's afraid the king's going to do something to him if he wants his sister and wants to marry her. Now, I've said before that Jonah's a story about God. It's also a story about us. Think about how we treat people when they disappoint us and they run away and they don't do what we think they should do. We are more like Donald Trump. You're fired. I gave you a chance. You disappointed me. You are out. We're like Paul and John Mark. Barnabas says, no, no, no. John Mark's still valuable. Paul says, you know what? I don't want anything to do with him. You guys go your way. I'll go mine. But God never deserts Jonah. And the lies of the enemy that flow through our heads are, you know what? You messed up. You're fired. But we fail to understand, like we celebrated this morning in communion, that God forgives and he restores. Now, it's not used for an excuse for sin. Rather, it's part of confession and repentance. Ephesians chapter 5, the first two verses says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. You know, we are not to imitate each other and form our own church where we look like each other. We're to be imitators of God, this incredible, creative, diverse God who is just so awesome and beyond anything we could ever think about. He says, be imitators of God as beloved children, as loved children, and walk in love. So here's the doctrine. Here's the praxis. We're to walk our life. That's what the word walk means. We're to live a life of love as Christ loved us. That's the doctrine. We celebrated that this morning. He gave himself up for us. That's our doctrine of fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. See, the praxis there is that we are to be like Christ to every situation and person we encounter. So we go back to this message. I like the little words at the end of verse 2. The message that I tell you. It's not what Jonah wanted to say. It's not what Nineveh wanted to hear. We could probably speculate it was not what Israel wanted to hear. But it was his message. And whenever we communicate God's message, we need to be gracious when giving it. It's truth and grace. And I've come across too many angry Christians who use God's truth as a bat to beat up people. To preach Christ, to live Christ, demands humility. Humility has to mark our character. I mean, we can stand up without being a jerk. Let's be honest. All the jerks make the news. And people outside the church that have never been inside a church, and they read the news, they assume that that's exactly how all Christians are. It's why it's so important to be Christ wherever you are. It's so important to realize that God's called you and placed you where you are. We are all full-time Christian workers. We just happen to have different jobs. So let's read on, verse 3. So Jonah arose, went to Nineveh. He obeyed. According to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out 
Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So Jonah was obedient. We find out later he still went kicking and screaming. He was hoping God would actually destroy Nineveh. And when you read the message, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown, I mean, that's not exactly a positive, redemptive message, is it? There was no call for repentance. There was no call for anything. He's saying, listen, guys, you got 40 days, you know, make plans for your funeral now, and boom, you're out of here. That's what he was hoping. We're going to find out later. What this tells us, though, is that there's going to be times that we're called to obey when we are not in love with the cause. We don't want to go. In fact, we might go kicking and screaming, and we don't want to love that particular person because of how they wounded us and hurt us. Now, the travel time, if Jonah was back at his home, was about one month in Nineveh. And you can imagine that month, he had time to think, and he had time to prepare himself. Talk about Nineveh being exceedingly great. There's four times in the text that it talks about that. If you study the Assyrians, they were known for their violence and cruelty, so I can imagine this was going through his head. And have you ever seen those old movies where these, these big cities are walled and outside they have stakes with the enemies with their heads sticking on top? I mean, that was the Assyrians. They had no mercy to their enemies. In chapter 4, verse 11, we realize there was about 120,000 children, which meant that this city could have easily exceeded 600,000 people in population. But the message, was, the message was just five Hebrew words. That's it. Now, I know you're sitting there saying and you're counting, but there's eight English. You understand that the Bible was written in Hebrew. <laughs> and when we try to translate, we try to understand what it said. But Jonah just repeated himself for three days as he walked, five words. That's it. Now, what we have to understand this morning is that loving God means that we're dedicated to living his life. You know, so often in the past, and this is part of the reduction of the good news, is that obedience was measured in what we did not do. I obeyed because I did not. God calls us to engage. God calls us to do. God calls us to action. You know, so often I hear some people say, well, you know, I, I don't want to be a hypocrite, so, so I don't do it because I don't want to. And we reduce things to our emotions. Like, well, I, I don't want to go to church this morning because I'd be a hypocrite if I go because I don't want to go. Now, Scripture says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. And it's a command. It's found in Hebrews. And the fact you don't want to go doesn't negate the command. I hear people talk about their marriages that way. Well, I don't want to be a hypocrite because I, I don't love the person anymore. Obedience means we engage our lives even when our emotions are screaming no. Why? Because it's the right thing to do. Let's go back to the marriage analogy. Men, you are always to love your wife even when she is, and I am not going to fill that in because I'd get in trouble. The point is this, men, you are called to love your wives. Ladies, you're to always love your husbands even when they drive you crazy with whatever they drive you crazy with. See, obedience means that we love each other. 
but our tendencies are to accuse the other of the very thing that we are guilty of. Now, here's some of our tendencies. One of the last weddings I did, it was interesting because I got a lot of comments back about what I said. And it was kind of the first time I said this in a wedding ceremony. But let me share this piece with you because maybe you'll identify. It evidently struck a nerve because a lot of people said, wow, you know, you're, you're right. I talked to the ladies in the, well, actually, I talked to the bride and I talked to the, all the ladies as well because they are to teach the younger women. I said, ladies, I said, your tendency is this. You get in groups, and when you get in groups, you have a tendency to bash hubby. And it seems like it's an enjoyable activity. But is that obediently loving your husband? Because you cannot do that and have it not affect your heart. Then I talked to the men. And by the way, women, when men get together, they don't bash their wives. They talk about hunting, guns, sports. But what they do is they do end up closing down to their wife. And they end up talking to the woman at work who's sympathetic to the cause. And I say, men, never have a conversation with another woman that you should have with your wife. Because you can't do that and have it not affect your heart. Now, I say all this because... I think one of the best witnesses we can share with our world is how to navigate marriage and family. Let's read on. Verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. I mean, what a credible message. Five words, and they believed. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. That just means... You know, if they had a newborn baby, they were putting sackcloth and ashes on this little baby. Imagine the scene here. The word reached the king of Nineveh. So it started at grassroots and kind of got to the king. He arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. He issued a proclamation and published it through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast nor herd nor flock taste anything let them not feed or drink water. So the fasting just not went human side. It went animal side. But let man and beast be covered in sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. So picture this scene. Doctrinally, they didn't get it right, okay? Doctrinally, they messed up. Animals don't have to put on sackcloth and ashes. And I can imagine us Americans who like to make sure things are right, would have went in there and said, you know, guys, you got it all wrong. This revival really ain't happening because you're just messing up. But you know what? Their hearts were right. I mean, let's face it. It was a five-word sermon. That's it. And their heart responded the best way they knew. Because sackcloth and ashes had to do with mourning. And it had to do with repentance. The word mightily here has to do with a word that is very urgent, very focused, kind of like don't let any other thing occupy your mind and your time. Let everyone turn from his evil way. So let's just not put on sackcloth, ashes, and pray. Let's actually do something. Turn away and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? 
God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Nineveh had a revival. They believed. The belief turned into action. They fasted. They put on sackcloth ashes. They prayed. They turned from their sins. And paid close attention to their attitude. It wasn't like, well, if we do these things, then God will. No, it's like we need to do these things because we are guilty. And maybe God will. It's an attitude of humility. Nineveh, one sermon, five words long. One preacher. Now let's contrast this with Matthew chapter 12. Verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Everybody wants a sign, don't they? But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So he's talking about himself, that Jonah was an archetype of the Messiah coming someday. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. Five words, one preacher, three days. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. And what he's saying is, listen, you guys possess three years of preaching, the Messiah himself, but you refuse to repent. You got the knowledge, you got all the information, but there's a huge gap between your praxis. You say you love the Messiah, you want the Messiah to come, but you really don't because he's wrecking your preferences and your ideas. You want to follow Christ only on your terms, not the terms that God has put in place. See, what they claimed they believed had no practical reality. Now, it did. It had a lot of religious activity. And some of that religious activity was actually good. But they didn't have God's version of what they were called to be and to do. Their reality was a list of do's and don'ts. Their reality was about their preferences. I mean, why do you think Jesus, Jesus went to the temple one day and cleaned house? Just started overturning everything. In verse 10 of Jonah 3, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Now, the word relent does not mean God changed his mind. It means that God is consistent with his character. God is gracious and forgiving. While he will judge, and what we mean by that is we receive the consequences that are consistent with our actions, he would rather judge with grace and forgiveness. Now we have all these images about what revival would look like. As I said before, Jonah contradicts most of them. But what we understand, according to Jonah, is that we have everything necessary for a revival, which means the problem is not with God. Too often we measure revival by a show of hands. But God measures revival by lives that are changed. Now there's three lessons I want to get into this morning from our text, and this is how I want to close. The first is this. 
God prepares the hearts of people. Revival is a heart issue. It's not a program issue. It is not a building issue. It is a heart issue, which means do we come to worship to an audience of one? If we do, we leave worshiping to an audience of one. Do we worship him with our minds and our hearts even when the emotions are not engaged? Philippians chapter 2. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And that word work out means you got to engage a life, an action life that's consistent with the good news. And then he says this, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And do you know what the next line is? I love this. He's talking about this incredible thing that God wants to work in you, do all these great things. And then he says this, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Ouch. Ouch. Number two, God prepares the heart of the people. Number two, our beliefs need to find tangible expressions in our lives. Go back to that phrase, do all things without grumbling or disputing. The world is crooked and twisted, and you are called to shine as lights. You're called to be a blessing. Act like you are a blessing. Pray that God will bring opportunities in your life. Bring your life closer to your beliefs. You know, Paul's writing to the early church, and I mean, we're just talking one generation out. And they're already fighting. And what are they fighting over? Well, things like this. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 where he says, you guys are kind of babies. You should be grown-ups, but I'm only giving you milk because you can't handle the meat. He says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? See, they were fighting over preachers. They were fighting over saying, you know what? My favorite preacher is Dr. Kine. I wish he would preach every week. No, 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 my favorite preacher is... What is Apollos? What is Paul? They're servants through whom you believed. As the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither is he who plants nor he who waters anything, but only God gives the growth. He who plants, he who waters are one. We work together in unity even though we are diverse and different. Each one will receive his wages according to his labor. Then I love this phrase. We are God's fellow workers. What an incredible blessing and privilege if we choose to live that. You are God's field, God's building. Who causes growth? Who plants and waters? We do. Who gets to work alongside of God? Do we let God plant his field? I mean, that's the reality of it. Or do we want to plant our own crops? Do we let God build his building? Or is it our design? And here's the third. We need to be sensitive to people unlike ourselves. You know, Israel took the people of God's status and made it exclusive. And when you read Genesis chapter 12, God always meant it to be inclusive. They were to be the sign pointing to him. And being sensitive does not mean we have to agree or approve. 
Being sensitive means that we treat people with respect and dignity, and we choose to love them even in their sin. Why? Because Paul says we're to be imitators of God, and just like God, he loved us while we were still sinners. Now, he loved us too much not to lie to us or leave us where we were, but he pointed a way out And that way out, he says this. And you understand this. It's about the relationship. He says, I will never leave you or forsake you. He will walk with you as you journey away from your sin. 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain. What was Cain like? Well, Cain went in his own way, and he ended up doing violence to his brother. He killed him because his preferences were different than God's command. And later on in verse 18, he says, Little children, do not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Talk's cheap. He says, I want to see it. Now, going back to our tendency... It's to hang out and help people who agree with our version of life. Somehow it makes us feel that we are the majority and right. And if we're honest, getting next to a stranger is uncomfortable. We might find out things we do not like. We might have to love people we really don't want to love. And even be afraid of what other people will think of us if they see us with those people. And why are we afraid? Because we know how people gossip. Why do we know how people gossip? Because they're like us. We gossip. (laughs) Truth is, we love gossiping the bad news. We're to gossip the good news of Jesus Christ. Think about it. It's all about the relationship. With Christ and with each other. We're going to call the band up. We're going to close with a song. As they come up, I want to pray with you. Let's pray together. Father God, we are thankful for the story of Jonah. It does disturb us. Truth is, it really kind of rocks our world because we're more like Jonah than we want to admit. Help us, Lord, to be obedient, but also align our heart with that obedience. Help us to preach the good news. And when your message comes to us, help us to live that out in ways that are extraordinary, that the world sees and the world engages. Help us to plant water the way you want us to plant water. I mean, we're ready for the growth. We desire the growth. We desire you to break into people's lives, but we first have to let you break into ours. So may we listen to your spirit as we leave this place. May we worship you by what we do and just not by what we say. And everyone said, amen.